This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach, and today I'm delighted to welcome Vanessa Bonds to the show. Vanessa will talk about honing the influence you already have and using it mindfully. Vanessa, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, I am thrilled that you're here and really eager to to dive in and learn about your new book. Um, But let's get started. You know, the book is all about trying to influence people. And you posit that we have so much more influence than we're possibly tapping or using. So how do we unearth the kind of influence that we have? How do we begin to realize that? That's right. And so one of the main reasons I wrote the book is that if you kind of look at all these books in this sphere, right, of, of how to get influence, they're all kind of about how to gain influence. And they all contain these tricks and tips and sort of their instruction manuals, you know, for winning friends and influencing people. And if you kind of took at face value how popular those kinds of books and seminars and messages are, you would think that people are hopelessly lacking in influence, right? That we just need so much instruction to help us become influential. But as a social psychologist who has studied social influence for over 15 years now, I see all the time how much we influence one another. And so for me, that kind of message didn't really resonate. And I wanted to put this other sort of piece out there into that landscape on influence that actually, you know, even without all these tricks and tips and things like that, we are constantly influencing other people. But in fact, we have these psychological biases that make us sort of miss the influence that we have. So we tend not to see situations in which we're impacting other people. We don't see sort of how much people are paying attention to us. Uh, We tend to underestimate how much our words land on other people and how convincing we can be. And we underestimate how likely people are to do things for us. And so a lot of being able to exercise and access that influence is becoming aware of it. Uh, And not necessarily, you know, developing these tricks and tips to become more influential, but becoming more mindful of the influence we have all the time. I'm so grateful that you you talk about self-awareness and being mindful. Is Is it fair to say, too, that we need to be more cognizant of how others perceive us? Yes, definitely. And so one of the things I talk about in the book uh, to become more mindful of our influence is something called getting perspective. And so you'll see, you know, a lot of the time in, in many of these influence books, you know, people talk about taking other people's perspective to kind of figure out what's going on in their head and how we're perceived by them. But in fact, when we try to take someone's perspective, we don't quite get out of our own heads. So when we're trying to figure out what someone else is thinking and what they're thinking about us, for example, we search our own minds to try to figure out, you know, what we think about us. And we try to base our idea of what someone else might think about us on stereotypes we might have of that person, ideas we might have of the type of person that is and what they think of us. And those things can be wrong because we're really just searching our own heads. We're not getting outside of our heads and getting new information. And so some researchers, Nick Epley and his colleagues, have said instead of taking perspective, we really need to learn how to get perspective. 
And that means actually getting out of our own heads and understanding more what people are actually thinking of us. And one way to do that, that he and his colleagues talk about, is simply asking people and listening and reading other perspectives. So basically anything that gets us out of our heads and into other people so that we have a better sense of, you know, what was it that I said that actually did impact you? You know, how did that phrase I say uh, land on your ears, for example? So beautifully put. And it's really simple when we think about it, because uh, often, and, and I see this a lot with my coaching clients, we play the mind reading game as if we think we know what they're thinking or how they perceived us or how our message landed, when in reality, often we need to ask. That's right. That's exactly right. And what we find in our studies, so basically research that myself and my colleagues do, is we have people tell us what their intuitions are about how they've impacted another person or how they're likely to impact another person. And then we actually test them out. We ask that other person, you know, how did you feel? How were you impacted? Or we look at what actually happens when someone tries to influence someone. And what we find again and again is that people's intuitions are often wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So as we try to read people's minds, we're often inaccurate. So To give one example, uh, in some of our studies, we have our participants go out and give strangers a compliment. And we tell them, you know, just either give someone a compliment like, hey, I like your shirt. Find something you like about this person and just compliment them on it. And we ask them before they go out, how good do you think this compliment is going to make that person feel? Then they go out and do it. And then we give a survey to that other person so that we can compare their intuitions about how good that that compliment would make someone feel to how good that compliment actually made the person feel. And what we find is that people tend to underestimate how good the other person would feel being complimented. And in fact, they don't just underestimate how good that person would feel. They actually think that person might feel bothered and annoyed being interrupted when in fact they feel nothing of the sort right? They feel quite happy to be complimented. And so that's one of the ways our sort of intuitions about how an interaction is likely to go is often so focused on our own self-conscious concerns and our ideas about what someone else might feel that if you actually ask that person how they actually felt, it was often much better. It was much better in our studies than our participants expected. That's a great example. Thank you for sharing that. So what about mistakes? Because clearly there are people out there trying to influence others unsuccessfully. So how do we navigate that? Sure. So in another set of studies that we do, instead of sending our participants out to give people things like compliments, we send them out and we have them ask for things. And in those studies as well, we ask people, you know, how likely are people to agree to do something for you? So in our studies, we've had them, you know, ask someone to mail a letter for them or fill out a survey or, you know, donate to charity. And then they go out and they ask people and we find that they underestimate how many people are likely to agree to this request. So we see this sort of underestimation. But We also see that, you know, while they may think that they'll have to ask, for example, 20 people before five people will agree, they actually have to ask 10 people before five will agree, which means they are getting some no's, right? So they are having this unsuccessful experience of influence as well. But when we've looked at what happens after you get that no, what we find is that people tend to take that no a little too personally and attribute it to either something about themselves something about the relationship, something about what they're asking for. 
And in fact, the other person isn't saying no for most of those reasons. The other person's usually saying no because of circumstances, because they don't have time or, you know, they just aren't an expert in the thing that we're asking them to do. And in fact, when we look at what happens after someone gets a no, if they ask that same person for a second favor, that person is more likely to say yes the next time because they feel so bad about having said no the first time. But our participants think that they're more likely to say no once they've said no once before. So basically, in terms of navigating the times that, you know, our influence has failed, we want to sort of look forward and assume that it's not about us. It's not about what we're doing or asking or our relationship with that person. It's often circumstantial. And that doesn't mean that we don't have influence over that person again in the future or that we could influence somebody else in a similar way. That is absolutely fascinating. Oh, my goodness. So much to think on there. Vanessa, we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedoubthiggins.com. So Vanessa, we're still navigating this pandemic journey. And one of the big global issues is to get vaccinated or not to get vaccinated. So I want to give you uh, a situation that really isn't hypothetical. How do we get people to follow or persuade them to change? You know, and whether or not you want to address the vaccination issue, it doesn't matter. But that's a big topic, right? So how do we begin to persuade someone to do something that they're not so excited about? Yeah, this is another place where we tend to underestimate the role of social norms in shaping other people's behavior. And so our intuition when we're trying to persuade someone to do something, for example, to get vaccinated or even, you know, to eat better or exercise more, our intuition is to kind of throw facts at them and tell them what they should be doing. And you even see this in a lot of the messaging, you know, whether it's coming from politicians or organizations that are trying to increase vaccination. You know, we, of course, want to debunk any myths about these things. But at the same time, it's not just about telling people what they should do and giving them a bunch of information. Because what happens is people look around at their community and their family and friends and see what people are actually doing. Right. So they may know I should do this or someone's telling me I should do this, but no one in my community is actually doing it. This is something that Bob Cialdini calls the difference between prescriptive norms, what you should do, and descriptive norms, what everybody else is doing. Right. So if I see a big sign that says don't litter and it's surrounded by litter, I learned that people litter here and I'm probably going to be more likely to litter and not follow that sign. So sort of continuing to keep the role of social norms in messaging is a really important thing for getting people to change or persuading them to do certain things. And you'll see in some messaging that messages actually undermine this. They'll say, you know, you should get vaccinated. Not enough people are doing it. So you've basically just told people what they should do, but that no one else is really doing it. So you're kind of undermining your message. Wow, gosh, this podcast needs to go out to everybody around the world because you just simplified things so beautifully. And 
well, clearly everybody needs to read your book, but it, but it just sounds to me like so many uh, of these messages are not landing because we're not thinking, like you just said, about the clarity of how you influence people authentically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other, so there's kind of this um, general persuasive techniques where you kind of tell people that this is what people are doing and you can phrase it in whatever way you can. You know, maybe most people aren't, but you can say a lot of people are, so you're not mm-hmm. undermining your message. Um, the other piece is basically softening our messages a little bit more. We have a tendency in research shows I talk about in the book that when we really think something's important for someone to do, we raise our voices and we use this overly aggressive, overly assertive uh, messaging to try to get them to do that thing. And that makes people dig in their heels. Mm -hmm. So there's a sort of a balancing act between being direct about like, this is what I want you to do. This is what you should be doing. This is what other people are doing but then not being so assertive that people automatically sort of push back and get this psychological reactance, right? Where you're taking away my freedom and now I'm definitely not going to do it. Um, And so it's kind of a a balance of those things, you know, communicating what you should do, what other people are doing and doing it in a way that's direct, but not super aggressive. Thank you for that. That's so clarifying. Let's talk a little bit about influencing in person versus virtually, since so many of us are still navigating, again, as I said, the pandemic journey. A lot of people have opted for work at home environments, even though many workplaces are open and they're happily working remotely. So that means communication is happening by Zoom and phone and you know, pick a technology. What are your thoughts there? That's right. And this is a really important question because what we find in our research is that people are much more influential in person than they are certainly over email and even over through other kinds of virtual media like Zoom and over the phone. Um, We are evolved and wired to pay attention to the people who are in the same space as us. There's a lot of nonverbal communication that happens in person. Uh, and, you know, it's just really hard when someone's, you know, trying to make a persuasive case or ask you to do something to say no or to challenge them when you're in person. All those things kind of get diluted when we're emailing someone or we're asking them through Zoom, for example, for something. And so that means we have to kind of work extra hard when we're operating through those kinds of media to influence and persuade people. So whereas in person, the exact content of what you say is often supplemented by these nonverbal cues that tell people whether they should believe you. You don't get so much of that over Zoom. And so you have to be extra careful with your words and plan even more in terms of the argument you're going to make. So rather than just, you know, jumping in in a meeting and giving your point like da da da, in Zoom, you kind of have to think, what exactly am I going to say? And when I have my moment, because we've all tried to interrupt people over Zoom and it gets very awkward, when I have my moment to speak, I give a nice, clear sort of persuasive argument. And all those things are just not as important in person. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. You know, you wrote so eloquently about the art of saying no. And I'd love for you to tell our audience, first of all, why why is it so darn hard to say no? And after that, how can we make saying no easier? Yeah, this is something so many people struggle with. Um, 
a lot of it, there's kind of this big picture aspect of saying no that really, you know, you're worried about damaging the relationship. Uh, and again, evolutionarily, we're wired to stay connected to other people. So it's this really threatening thing like, oh, if I'm rejected, you know, that damages the relationship. It, you know, suggests something negative about me or us. But at the heart of it, when it comes down to the exact moment, it's just really, really awkward to say no, right? You have to find the words. Uh, if you're face to face with someone, it's particularly uncomfortable because you have to tell them to their face, no. Um, and so one of the ways to get better about that is to give yourself some space from that awkward, intense situation in the moment where someone's asking you for something. So it's a lot harder to say no to someone who's standing in front of you and you have to make a decision on the spot. So what I often say is if someone's asking you for something, tell them, you know, let me think about it if you don't want to say no in the moment and send me an email. And what that does is it just buys you some space. You didn't have to say no in the moment. You didn't have to kind of find the words. But now you can take the time to think about, OK, how am I going to you know, reject this person in a way that preserves the relationship? And I can actually think about whether I want to do this and make a mindful decision instead of feeling that gut reaction in the moment that like, oh, I just can't say no, I'm just going to agree. I love that. And I'm thinking about this is equally important for extroverts who might be quick on their feet and can respond, as well as the introverts who need some process time, because at the end of the day, it's always going to be better if you give yourself that space to be mindful. So that is a great example. You know, Vanessa, it's interesting because we're still uh, hearing a lot right now about employee burnout, overwhelm, so much happening. And you write about how uh, underestimating our influence over others can impact employee burnout. So tell me more. That's right. So a lot of employee burnout comes from our inability to disconnect. For example, on the weekends or in the evenings, you know, many of us have work email on our phones. We take our phones everywhere. Out to dinner, you hear that little ping. Right before bed, you hear that little ping. And if someone's emailing you uh, from work, especially if it's your boss, for example, right, it makes it even harder to disconnect. And the thing that we often forget is that it, as hard as it is for us, when we send emails like that in the evening or on the weekend and someone else is receiving them, we're making it harder for them to disconnect. And so what my colleague Laura Gerge and I have shown is that something as simple as explicitly saying, you don't need to get to this right now. I'm sending this during the hours when I'm free. I respect your non-working hours. Please don't feel obligated to respond right away. That explicitly conveys to someone that they don't have to respond right away. And that kind of gives them permission to, you know, keep their evenings free or take their time to respond on Monday. And we tend not to do that. We tend to tell people when something's urgent, right? We have our little red exclamation point that we add to our emails. But we often don't explicitly say, this is not urgent. Don't worry about this until you're actually back on working hours. Great example. So this surprised me in the book. Uh, you're, you're writing about the underappreciated power of embarrassment in our lives. I learned a lot there, and I'd love for you to share with our global audience about the power of embarrassment. Sure. And this, it, it definitely is underappreciated because when we think of embarrassment, we think it's this sort of trivial thing that we feel when we trip on something or, you know, say something silly. And that is true. But 
embarrassment can cause us to do all sorts of other things that are much more consequential. So for example, you know, a really dramatic example is if you're choking at the table, a lot of people's impulse is to run away from the table where people could help you, right, potentially even save your life because you feel so embarrassed to be standing there choking in front of people. Um, But that same sort of impulse can also arise in other cases. For example, if we witness, you know, racist remarks or homophobic remarks, or we see someone being sexually harassed, many of us say in the abstract, when we consider these situations hypothetically, that, of course, I would step in and say something if I ever saw that. But in fact, in the moment, there's a lot of ambiguity. We worry if we say something that maybe we misread the situation and that we're going to embarrass ourselves. And just like embarrassment can cause us to run away from a table choking, it can also keep us from speaking up against, you know, injustices that we see that we think in the abstract we would definitely speak up against. You know, I was pondering as I as I read your book about how what we say certainly has influence over others. But you wrote about how we often underestimate the impact of our presence, our body language on others. Share a little bit more about that. Yeah, this is a really fascinating piece of work by Erica Boothby and her colleagues. So they basically show that we feel like we walk through the world in an invisibility cloak. So we actually feel like people are looking at us and paying less attention to us than they actually are. And so when we show up at a meeting, for example, we may have nothing to say. We may just be sitting there and sort of assuming that no one really is noticing us or paying attention to us. And we assume that the person in the front of the room is the one with all the power and the influence who's like running the show. But in fact, people in the room do notice that you're there. Even that person in the front, right? We all are kind of crowd pleasers. We all want to check in with our audience and make sure that they're happy. And so they're noticing your presence. They have ideas about the things you care about. And in fact, that can mean that they start framing a conversation in ways they think you would appreciate, uh, even if you never say a thing. And so what that means is simply by being present, for example, in a meeting about a decision that you think is important, even if you never say a thing, you can shape the way that discussion goes because people are seeing you there more than you realize and sort of tuning the discussion to what they think you want to hear more than you might realize. Vanessa, I learned so much from you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your expertise on this show. And I want to tell our global audience how to buy your book and share the title. It's called, You Have More Influence Than You Think, How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion and Why It Matters by Vanessa Bonds. Vanessa, thank you. I I wish you continued success on the book journey. And I'm just so delighted that you could spend time with me and this global audience today. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. And if you like the show, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review because this helps new people find us online. And of course, Vanessa's book can be found on Amazon and all major book retailers. And I want to send a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening. Whoa.